Amen, amen. The Bible tells me so. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful thought? Open up the Bible and hear such a great thing. Jesus loves me. This I know. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 119, if you would please. Psalm chapter 119. And today I'd like to preach to you a sermon called, I Love the Old Bible. I Love the Old Bible. And that's, just, that's not just the name of my sermon, that's, that's a statement from my heart. I love the old Bible. I love the old one, by the way, <laughs> but I, I love the old Bible. Psalm 119, and I'd like to, I think I have 18 different verses I'd like to show you from this chapter. This is the longest chapter in the Word of God, and every single verse in it talks about the Word of God. Every single verse, 176 verses in this one chapter, every verse is about the Bible in one way or another, directly mentioning. Let's just walk through them just for, uh, to get started this morning. In verse number nine, it says, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Where does a young man need to start off? He needs to start off right there in the Bible establish his goings get him get him biblically aligned verse number 14 i have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches imagine somebody wins the lottery the joy that comes over them we have something so much better than the lottery <laughs> heaven and earth will pass away jesus said my word will not pass away can you say verse 14 could you honestly say that I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies. This is God's testimony, by the way. When we testify, we tell you our story. This is God telling you his story. Now, we keep having those good ideas. Let's, let's, let's mute those good ideas just for a moment. In verse number 16, verse 16, I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Did you forget it this week? Did you forget to read it this week? Let's come to verse number 47. Verse number 47. David says, And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. I love the old Bible. David said it 3,000 years ago. Verse number 71. Oh, here's a tough one. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Ooh. Ooh, David, why'd you put that in the Bible? <laughs> It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. You know, when you're going through something and drowning in the waters of depression, debt, divorce, distress, whatever it is, there's something about those times in our life that draw us back into the Bible. God, show me something. David said, I'm so grateful that I was afflicted because in those afflictions, I learned so much about God and his word. Verse number 75 follows up on that thought. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. God, why would you let this happen? David studied it out in the Bible and his conclusion was, God, you were right, I was wrong. Oh, I love the old Bible. Verse 80, verse 80. Let my heart be sound in thy statutes that I be not ashamed 
God, let me be sound in what I believe from your word. I want to know if I'm right or wrong, and I can only know that if I know your word. I don't want to stand before you ashamed. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Verse number 97. Oh, how love I thy law, exclamation mark. (laughs) I like that. Don't forget the exclamation mark. Very important. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Can you say that? Could you have written that? Is that your attitude towards the old Bible? Verse 103. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, exclamation mark. Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I I, I know what it looks like when somebody's excited about a lecker piece of chocolate cake or or friella milk tart. (laughs) I know how excited. See, man, look at these. Everybody just brightened up there. Oh, love the Bible, love the Bible. Milk tart, I heard milk tart. Somebody said milk tart? He says, God, your word is better than all that. Oh, I'm excited about the Bible. Verse 127. Verse 127. Therefore, I love thy commandments above gold. Yea, above fine gold. You feel that way about the Bible? He said, I love thy commandments. I love your Bible. Verse 28. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. Not only where it talks about Jesus loved me, Jesus loves me, this I know. But all things. God, when you say something about my marriage, I think it's right. When you say something about my studies at school, it's right. When you say something about my marriage, it's right. Workplace, right. Government, right. Every single part, God, I think it's right. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Hate not as in he's going to be aggressive and persecute them, but hate as in now that he knows the absolute truth and he knows confidently, he has all assurance that what God said is right, he's so disappointed to see other people having the false way. He says, man, I'm, I feel I'm so brokenhearted. I, I hate that you're having to struggle along through misconceptions when there is a right way to believe. Verse number 133, order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Anybody who's ever struggled with a habitual sin, a bad habit they're trying to break, I suggest you memorize and pray daily. Verse 133, start every day with that. Order my steps in thy word. Let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Verse 159, Verse 159, consider how I love thy precepts. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. Quicken me is another way of saying make me alive. Revive me. Revive me. Have you ever gone through a phase in your Christian life where you feel like you've just cooled off a bit? You're not as close to the Lord as you once were. You can find a lot of advice in this. Get connected to your Bible again. God, remember how much I love, I love your word, your precepts. 
God, now use those words. Show me something. Speak to me as I read my Bible and get me excited again. Stir the passions of my heart. So many times we get lukewarm and then we separate ourselves from our Bibles because we don't feel like reading it. That's the time you need to read it most. Verse number 162. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. He said it's as if I was walking down the street and there was just a bag of treasure just sitting there on the street ready for millions of rands sitting in and I just happened to stumble upon it. Imagine how happy you'd be, right? Go out in the car park today and sitting next to your car is a big bag full of money. Don't act all spiritual. You would jump and you'd be singing and dancing in the car park. What a pleasant miracle. And yet you have right now in your hands, in your lap, you have something better than all the treasure, than all the silver and gold. Verse number, verse number 165. 165, great peace have they which love thy law. Love, love thy law. And nothing shall offend them. Now when David says nothing shall offend them, he doesn't mean that if someone else says something rude to you, you're not gonna be offended by that. that he's not dealing with that. But when life happens, when you go through bad times, you're not going to get upset at God and get offended and, and that is to be caused to stumble. You're not, you're not gonna trip over that trouble and go, that's it, I give up, God doesn't love me. You have the Bible to tell you why God might be doing it, how to deal with it, and therefore it won't cause you to stumble and get out of the way with God. In verse number 176, last verse, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant. Why would he say this? You read the Bible and you'll find out man is depraved, sinful, and prone to wander. Don't we sing that in one of our songs? Number 17, come thou fount. We sing it in there. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Why would we sing that? Why would David pray this? Because through reading the Bible, you get to know the real you, the real you. Not the one that all your buddies tell you you are. Not the, not the you that society tells you you are. Not the you that exists in psychology and science books. But the you that God knows you are. And the Bible tells you that. And David learned it and he said, I, I know where I can go wrong. And I know, God, that you're merciful. And when I begin to stray, you'll come looking for me. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. There was a while back, I went through some rough, rough times. And I remember thinking to myself, I was upset with God. And I didn't, I didn't feel like talking to him, so I didn't. It's the only week in my saved life I, I didn't pray for an entire week. I said, God, since you're not talking to me, I won't talk to you. <laughs> like I'm really, you know, muscling up to God. I made one big mistake, though. I kept reading the Bible every day. <laughs> I thought, well, I won't pray, but, well, I have to read the Bible. And the more I read it, the more it reminded me. And, and you know what was amazing? I was reminded not, not just that I owed God more than, more than the effort I was giving, but how compassionate and long-suffering and how much he cared about me even in that tough time. Don't forget his commandments even when you're going astray. If there's anything I'd like for you to get as you come to this church, and you can't get it in just one church service, by the way, but one of the things we always want to emphasize 
is getting you to fall in love with the Word of God because then, then, no matter what comes along, you don't get offended. When you stray, you don't stray too far. The Bible will act as an anchor for your soul. I love the old Bible. Now, can I ask you, would you bow your heads with me? I'd like to pray before we get deep into this and then we'll continue. Father, please help us this morning. Thank you for these wonderful words that we've already read. We have so many more things to say. Please, God, fill me with your spirit. I want to talk about your word and I can't do that justice. So would you, would you come in and stir our hearts this morning? Quicken us, O oh Lord, according to thy loving kindness, according as we've seen in the Bible. Do for us what you've done for so many others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Years ago, a pastor, he went to a uh, family's house. He was doing a regular visit and just wanted to see how the family was doing. And as some families do, when they know the pastor's coming, you know, they really get everything you know spiffied up and they they get the house tidy and everybody's got their nice clothes on and you know they the mom and dad tell the kids now when the pastor's here don't say this and don't tell them about that and so on and so forth. I know none of you do that but some in some places that happens <clears throat> I was even told that in some houses you have what's called a, a pastor sakamar or a dumini sakamar I I don't know what that is really but um, one, one time he actually took me in and said, this is the Dumini Sakamara. We don't go in here unless the pastor is here with us. So I, uh, okay. But this pastor went into this house. He sat down with the family. And this family, they're trying to, you know, impress the pastor with how spiritual they are. And, and the mom turns to their daughter, a little, little girl, you know, and says, says uh, now, sweetie, go in the other room. Go in that room and, and bring that Bible that our family loves so much. That ye, or, or bring that book, rather. Bring that book that our family loves so much. You know, the one that sits on the middle of the table that we always use? She runs off into that other room and runs back into the room and hands the pastor the TV guide. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Oops. <clears throat> Truth came out a little bit. I, I think you might have seen this. This is a, uh, something that's been posted on YouTube. If I'm not mistaken, uh, I, I don't keep up with Chinese law that much, but if I'm not mistaken, the Bible is banned in China to a certain extent. I'm not sure to what extent. It seems as if it's illegal to download it through the internet. Maybe you're able to sell it somehow. I'm not sure, but they are persecuting Christians, and I know the Bible is frowned upon there at the very least. But I, this was posted about four years ago. Somebody sent a few suitcases filled with Bibles into China. And I assume it was a missionary that was videoing this. But they opened up these suitcases filled with Bibles wrapped in plastic. And these Chinese, they rushed. They mobbed those suitcases. And every one of them grabbing a Bible. And they stood back with their Bibles. And they began to kiss them. And they began to hug them. And you could see the tears coming down their face. And as I, I saw that several years ago and I watched it again yesterday. And this time that somebody had put on there, they translated what the Chinese lady was saying. She was saying over and over again, this is what we needed most. This is what we needed most. I wonder what it would take for us to fall in love with the Bible in that manner to where we would rush into our studies, rush to our quiet spot, pick up our Bibles and hug them, pick up our Bibles and kiss them and say, this is what I need the most. I think it's like a lot of things in life, right? After we've had access to it long enough, we begin to take it for granted. I would like to, if I can, remind you or maybe bring to your attention for the first time why 
I want to say we, I, I will say I, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> but I would like to say we, why we believe the Bible is such an amazing book and why we love it so. So I'm going to try to present this from several different angles. Can I ask you to turn to Genesis with me? <clears throat> I'm so sorry. Genesis chapter 12. I first want to talk about something a little deep, but I'd like to mention the symmetry of the Bible. The symmetry of the Bible. When I say symmetry, I'm talking about a perfect balance on both sides. And there's no other holy book, no other sacred scripture in the world that is balanced like the Bible front to back. The Bible is not a straight line. In most books, in the beginning, and the Bible does get us there, and then it does go to the end, but... It starts with the story one way and it ends up very different. In the Bible, the story starts one way and it ends, it makes a circle. It goes full circle and comes right back to where it started and it gives perfect balance on both sides, beginning and end. I'm gonna try to bring that out a little bit here in a moment. But even within the Bible, and some of you have heard me mention this before, you have what some people have nicknamed the, the mini Bible. It's the book of Isaiah, and in the book of Isaiah, the Bible in miniature, you have 66 chapters in that book. There are 66 books in the Bible. And in the book of Isaiah, it starts in chapter 1. There's a verse there that says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Well, in Genesis, we read, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So chapter 1 lines up with the first book of the Bible. In chapter 66, it says, There's a new heavens and a new earth and a lake of fire. You know where you read about that? Revelation. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah is, there are some prophetical things, but it's basically historical. And then in chapter 40, there's this massive shift in the book. And so much so that some people think a different Isaiah wrote the last 27 chapters. Did you know that there's 39 books in the Old Testament and then there's this massive shift? Book number 40 is the book of Matthew that starts the New Testament. And it's, it, they're so different. You know what you read in Isaiah chapter 40? Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight way in the desert. Exactly what you read in the book of Matthew. And as I've looked through it, you can almost make every chapter line up with something from its corresponding book of the Bible. Simply tremendous. There's a perfect balance within the book of Isaiah showing you which books should be where in the Bible. Now as you read Genesis, as I mentioned, it makes a bit of a circle and comes back with Revelation right back to the beginning. Somebody pointed this out to me years ago and I found it fascinating. As you finish your Bible, starting in Revelation 12 and moving forward, you can also go to Genesis 12 and start moving backwards and the two will play into each other. In Revelation 12, we find out that Israel is in, the land, is in their own land, if I can say it like that. In Revelation 12, we're talking about Israel in the tribulation time. Now, forgive me if, if some of you aren't familiar with those terms. In the end times, Israel has been allowed to be in their homeland, and then the Antichrist is going to run them out. That's Revelation 12. You know what you have in Genesis 12? You have Abraham. God says, get out of your land. And then in Revelation 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, you read about a one-world government one world religion and one language that unites them. You know what you read in Genesis 11? The Tower of Babel where the languages got confused. The world, as they progress towards the end of the Bible, 
you can go backwards through Genesis and find the same thing happening, perfect symmetry going the other direction. Where the languages were confused, now, in, in Revelation, they're all coming back together. In Genesis 10, we read about all the nations being one under a man named Nimrod, who, by the way, not only ran the government, but ran the religion. There was a one-world government with a one-world religion, and they spoke one language. That's exactly how Revelation portrays it. Perfect symmetry. And then when you get to Revelation 19, you have the second coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, massive worldwide destruction. There is, however, a small remnant that lives through this massive destruction. So when you turn the other way and go backwards in the Bible, Genesis 9, there's a small remnant that makes it through a massive destruction, Noah and his family. In Genesis 8, 7, 6, you have God telling Noah there's going to be a worldwide destruction exactly as it moves in the opposite direction of Revelation. Do you know after Jesus comes back to the earth, he renovates the earth and it becomes a paradise again. And we read in Revelation 20 that we'll live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Isaiah 65 tells us that in that millennial time, human beings will live much longer, six, seven, eight hundred years. You know what you read in Genesis 5 as you go that way? People live six, seven, eight hundred years. Perfect symmetry. Do you know what happens after the thousand years in Revelation chapter 20? You read that the devil that deceived them, he attacks the beloved city and he tries to overthrow Jesus after the thousand years are finished. And he talks about the beloved city that's being attacked. Do you know where the first city was made it's mentioned in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain who's a picture of Satan and it says Satan will deceive the nations that's Genesis chapter 3 that's where he started to deceive the last time the devil ever deceives anyone is in Revelation 20 the first time he did it is in Genesis 3 perfect symmetry First time we're introduced to the devil Genesis 3 last time we read about it Revelation 20 but you get him out of the picture He's cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21 and 22, you are in a, a new heaven, new earth with new Jerusalem. There is a river of life running through the city with the tree of life everywhere. God and man living in perfect harmony, sinless, perfect fellowship. You know what you read in Genesis 1 and 2? God and man, perfect, sinless fellowship. There's a river of life and there's a tree of life, perfect symmetry. I don't know how any one man could have figured that out and put the Bible together to where it formed this perfect circle where it starts off and ends up mirroring one side or the other. Absolutely breathtaking that 40 different men over 2,000 years, their collective work produced such a perfectly balanced Bible. Might I say that if you were to apply this Bible, it would add some symmetry to your life and balance things exactly the way they need to be balanced. Not only the symmetry of the Bible is impressive to me, but I believe also the science of the Bible. I'm impressed by the science that I find within it, and I certainly don't have time to go through all of it. I taught you folks, I think maybe five or six years ago, I did an hour-long lesson on all the science that you can find in the Bible. But you know in Leviticus chapter 15, Moses wrote about using running water to wash things. Did you know that it wasn't until the 1800s that science caught up with the 
veracity of that and the need for that. During the Civil War in America, they would amputate somebody's uh, leg or arm and then take that tool and drop it into a bowl filled with water. And then when the next patient came in, they'd grab that same tool out of that sitting, standing water and go to cutting again. That's about as bad as you can do for infections. But all the way back in the Old Testament law in Leviticus, this is now... 1500 we're talking 3500 years before science figured it out he said no no if you're going to have blood everywhere make sure you use running water now he could he couldn't have known that scientifically science hadn't figured it out but God that shows me that God was the one directing him to write and institute those commands the Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth Isaiah wrote that in 720 B.C. No one even postulated around earth until the 600s B.C. And it wasn't until Christopher Columbus that people actually took the idea seriously. 1492 A.D. where they really took seriously the earth might be round. Other people had talked about it. But then finally when they fly out into outer space and take a picture of the earth and there it is, this round planet we live on, they say, sure enough, Isaiah had it right. Science figured it out 2,700 years after it was written, but exactly the way it was written. In the same verse, it's he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. Now, in those times, of course, everybody thought the, the earth was just flat, so the circle was a strange idea. But then also it says, it is he that stretches out the heavens as a curtain. But what's interesting about that verse is it doesn't say he stretched out the heavens. It puts it in the present tense. He stretches out the heavens. That's very interesting. So in 1927, they start studying the cosmic radiation in the background, all the noise from, from what they said was the Big Bang, which we can talk about the Big Bang some other time. But they said, they said as they started looking out into the far reaches of various galaxies, it looks as if the universe is continually expanding. Isaiah knew that. He said, yep, God's the one, he stretches, present tense. He didn't stop, he stretches out the heavens. And sure enough, science finally caught up with that. Something I read just a few years back, science, I don't, I don't know how they figured this out, but they said when we look to the very edge of what we can see of the universe, they see dark matter and dark energy. They don't know what it is. That, that's the reason they call it dark is because they don't know what it is. But they say beyond that, we see water. There's evidence of water. You can go look it up. NASA, NASA did some sort of test and found water out there. But did you know in the book of Psalms, chapter 148, it says that there are waters above the heavens? Now, how did David know that in 1000 BC? They just figured it out in the 21st century. I find the Bible to be very, very impressive. One of the oldest books in the Bible, the book of Job, in chapter 26, Job says... God is the one who hangs the earth upon nothing. He hangs it upon nothing. It's the beloved sky hook for you engineers. <laughs> have you ever used a sky hook on the, on the, you guys know what a sky hook is? You guys have never heard of the sky hook? Oh, this is something you do when you got a newbie, when you have a new employee who's never worked in carpentry or building anything, you say, run and get the sky hook. Guys, there is no such thing as a sky hook, right? But you want to hang something from the, from the sky with a hook. <laughs> There's no such thing. Unless you're talking about God hanging the earth on nothing. That's a sky hook. <laughs> when Job wrote this or when he said this, 
The common thought was the earth is sitting on the back of a gigantic cosmic turtle. Now, I don't know what scientific evidence there was for the, for the giant tortoise, but that was the common thought. There's no reason why Job would have said the earth is hanging on nothing. There's only one way he knows that, and that is God revealed it to him. It gives me confidence that this book that we hold in our hands is not just the work of men. It has the fingerprints of God all over it. Can I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13, please? Verse number 23. I stand in awe of the Bible. It's symmetry, breathtaking. It's science, blows my mind. But this book, the words in it, they're able to tell us and to see the future. Symmetry, science, seeing the future, prophecy that is. Mark chapter 13, verse 23, Jesus says, and this whole chapter is about prophecy. He says, but take ye heed. Mark 13, 23. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. This is one thing that Jesus did to prove to people that he was not like all the others. He wasn't just a good teacher or a Jewish rabbi. He was something special come down from heaven. He says, listen, I'm able to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. You find this all through the Bible. No other holy book can do this. I've read the Quran. There's one prophecy in it that they point to, and it is, it's so vague. The Romans had been defeated in a battle, and now Muhammad says the Romans are going to rise back up in a few years, maybe six to nine years. <laughs> he, he couldn't tell you for sure. Well, you know, when, whenever you're dealing with who's going to win a war, it's a coin toss, right? I mean, you got a 50-50 chance of getting that right. It's not that impressive of a, of a prophecy. And most people say Muhammad was not that kind of a prophet. He was the kind of prophet that just told you what God wanted to say. He could not see the future. So they're willing to admit that. There's no other book in the world that can tell you what's going to happen. And as you read it, you're reading tomorrow's newspaper. Tremendous how many prophets, and we're talking hundreds of them. I'll give you just a few examples. God told Abraham... Your seed is going to be stuck in a foreign land that will mistreat them and abuse them and 400 years after they've gone into this place, they'll come out. You know what happened 400 years after God told them that? Israel came out of Egypt where they were mistreated and abused. 400, 400 years exactly the way God said it would happen. Moses shows up and he says, guys, I'm gonna prove to you that God is the one behind what we're doing God is going to do this plague, and then the plague happened. Another plague, and the plague happened. Now, bear in mind, that's short-term prophecy, each one. But then he says, put the blood on the doorpost because the angel's going to pass through, and if he doesn't see the blood, there's going to be the death of the firstborn. That's prophecy, short-term, but prophecy. You know what happened that, that night? The angel passed through, and all the firstborn in Egypt died, exactly the way Moses said it would happen. Moses predicted Almost a thousand years before it happened, he predicted the Babylonian captivity. When you go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 28, you would swear that you're standing in the year 580 because he gives the details of how the Babylonians would come and wipe them out and it happened exactly the way Moses said it would. You can go a step further. Moses said, one day, you Israelites, you're going to return to Egypt. And you're going to return as slaves, but when they bring you here, they'll try to sell you, but they won't be able to get anything for it. You'll be sold into slavery, but 
at, at, at a, for free. You know what happened in 70 AD? This is now 1,600 years, 1,550 maybe after Moses said it, in 70 AD, the Romans came in and attacked Israel, wiped them out, put the, Jew, the Jews that they didn't kill, they put the Jews on boats, shipped them down to Egypt, and tried to sell them into slavery, but there were so many of them, they had to give them away. And they went into slavery for free, exactly the way Moses said it would happen. Over and over again, Joshua, after the destruction of Jericho, he said, whoever tries to rebuild Jericho, they'll do it at the expense of their firstborn son and their lastborn son. They'll lay the foundation, and when they do, their firstborn will die. And when they raise up the gates, that's the last thing you would put on a, on a property, then your, your lastborn will die. And sure enough, about 500 years later, a man named Hiel the Bethelite, you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 16, he laid the foundation of Jericho and his firstborn son Abiram died. And when he put up the gates, his lastborn Sirug died. Exactly the way Joshua said it would happen. Isaiah stands up in 720 BC and he says, one day there's gonna be a man named Cyrus. And this king, this man Cyrus, will say to the temple, he'll say to Jerusalem, let thy foundation, uh, I'm sorry, to Jerusalem thou shalt be built. And he'll say to the temple, let the foundation be laid. Now, now here, let me paint the picture so you can appreciate this. In 720 BC, guys, Jerusalem was still a viable city. It wasn't destroyed yet. And the temple was still standing. Why, why then would Isaiah say one day Jerusalem will, someone will say to it, be built and say to the temple, let the foundation be laid. There's a foundation there now. Why would he say that? Well, because about 120 years later, Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the temple and destroyed the city, knocked down everything, ruined the foundation. Isaiah said it in 720. About 150 years later, a man was born who would become the king of Persia, and his name was Cyrus. Isaiah knew the name 150 years before he was born. Any of you want to tell me who the president of South Africa will be in the next 150 years? Semalema. <laughs> you don't know that, but Isaiah, how did he know the name? He knew the name. And you know what Cyrus said in 536 BC when he sent Israel back to their land? He said, Jerusalem, be built. Temple, let the foundation be laid. Isaiah knew what Cyrus would say. He gave the exact quotes and it is exactly what Cyrus said. Breathtaking. In the next chapter, he says, Cyrus, listen here. This is Isaiah talking to Cyrus 150 years before Cyrus is even born. He says, Cyrus, listen here. There's only one God and he created good. He created evil, that is natural disasters, earthquakes, things like that. He created light and darkness. There's only one. Both, there's, all of those things were created by one God. Why tell Cyrus that? Well, Isaiah said it in 720. In the year 600, a man named Zoroaster showed up and he said there are two gods. There's the God of the east and the God of the west. The God of the east created light and good. The God of the west, he created darkness and evil. Cyrus was a follower of Zoroaster. He believed that was his religion. He pushed it on his people in the Persian kingdom. So Isaiah left a little bit, a little passage there for him to say, hey, Cyrus, just so you know, 
I already know what you're going to believe before you ever believe it. And here's the truth of it. There's not two gods, there's one. How did he know that? When you get into the book of Daniel, it is the prophecies in the book of Daniel are so breathtaking. There was a man in the year 200 or the late 200s AD, a man named Porphyry. And Porphyry, he said that the book of Daniel is so precise, there is no way it could be prophecy. He, was, he himself was a philosopher, so he went around telling everybody, the Bible's a lie, no one can know the future that precisely. So he theorized Daniel must have been a historian living after the events he mentioned in his book because in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel goes through and in one chapter, he comments on 200 years worth of history. And the details are so precise, it's as if you're reading a newspaper. Not one nation beats another nation. It talks about what one king will say to the other king and then this guy's daughter rises up and takes over the, all the details. Well, it has since been proved that Daniel was not a historian. He did live in the 500s BC. These were prophecies. And by the way, Jesus said Daniel was a prophet, not a historian. Absolutely breathtaking. Could any of you give this prediction this morning comfortably? Would any of you predict that Zimbabwe will one day rule Africa? I hear some giggles, but I don't see anybody nodding. Would you, would you think that? Any of you would say Lesotho is going to rule all of the continent? Probably wouldn't go there with that, right? That doesn't seem like a logical choice. But Daniel, in chapter 8 of his book, said Greece is going to rise up and rule the then-known world. Guys, at the time, Greece was the equivalent of Lesotho or Zimbabwe. <laughs> Why would Daniel say that? That makes no sense from a natural point of view. But when you consider that God was the one whispering this in his ear, it makes this book so much more amazing. We're reading tomorrow's newspaper. And then when we get to the Lord Jesus, they said he'd be born of a, vir of a virgin, and he was. They said he'd be born in Bethlehem, and he was. Isaiah said he'll be like a root out of a dry ground, and nobody will desire him. That's exactly what happened when he came to the world. The Bible says in Zechariah that he would ride upon the ass and the colt, the foal of an ass, as he entered into Jerusalem. That's exactly what he did. Psalms, a thousand years before it happened, said that he would be betrayed by a close companion. Judas did that. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah said 30 pieces of silver. That's exactly what Judas sold him for. Isaiah says that the Messiah would give his back to the smiters and that he would have stripes. That's exactly what happened before Jesus died. Isaiah said he would be wounded and bruised. Exactly what happened. You read in Zechariah and in the book of Psalms that the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and feet. That's exactly what happened when he went to the cross. Isaiah 53 says he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. And that's exactly what happened with Joseph of Arimathea. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. And in Psalm chapter uh, 16, it says that this man would not see corruption but would rise from the dead. And that's exactly what he did three days after they buried him. I've given you just a handful. There are 48 prophecies altogether that Jesus fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection. I say this book is breathtaking because it can see the future. Tell you another thing that's breathtaking about it. Come to 2 Timothy chapter 3, please. I love the old Bible. 
every which angle you look at it with. It becomes more and more amazing. Let's get 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 15. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. Paul says here, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you another thing that's amazing about this book is the salvation that it explains. Symmetry, science, sees the future, and the salvation. My goodness, this book gives us a story like no other holy book. Can I sum up all the other sacred scriptures? You can read the Bahabha Gita, the Indian, the Hindu literature. You can read the Quran. Take, take up any other holy book, and this is how you can summar, uh, summarize it. Do the best you can, and maybe it will be enough. That's pretty much every holy book there is. Now, depending on whichever God they say wrote it, they'll put a few little nuances to it, but at the end of the day, it is you saving yourself. Every holy book is set up like that until you get to the Bible. The Bible comes in and says, you're so bad, you can't save yourself, you need a savior. If you were here for Sunday school, I, I, we took almost the entire hour, right, talking about that. You wanna hear it again? Come back tonight. We'll, we'll, we'll tell you over and over, week after week, what God did to save your soul. But to come up with this plan, who would have ever thought that the God who created the universe and created you would one day step down into, the, into this universe, humble himself, put on human flesh, walk amongst us, and then offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins? I heard it explained like this recently, and, 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 and this person did a good job of explaining religion. It's kind of like going to university, which I think a lot of you can appreciate now. You have to apply and get accepted, right? You have to impress the university enough to let you in with your grades and so forth. Once you get accepted, you're part of the club. You're, you're part of the campus. And now you have to work really hard and do what the leaders say, and if you work hard enough and do what they say, then eventually on the day of, let's call it judgment slash final exam, if you pass the test, you're in. You get the degree, you get the reward. Now, that's, that's university. Do you see how almost all religions use the same setup? All right, let's interview you, see if you're worthy to be part of our group. Oh, you are? Okay, here's the rules. Now do the best you can to follow our religion. And then one day after you die, there'll be an exam and God will see if you really know your stuff and if you did enough. And if you did, you get in. You'll be rewarded. Guys, the Bible doesn't present that type of salvation. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God came up with such a plan that he knew we couldn't save ourselves. He knew this. So he says, here's what I'll do. You have a debt that you cannot pay. So you can hand me the debt. I'll pay it for you. But, but, as you hand him the debt, you see the problem here is, is God, he has to punish you because you, you broke the law, right? You broke the law. So he has to punish you, but he doesn't want to punish you because he loves you. Do you see the conundrum? He has to punish you, but he doesn't want to. So now that you've got the mercy of God and, 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 and his love and his compassion, it's fighting against his holiness. 
and his justice and his truth. He has to do it, but I don't want to, but I have to do it, but I don't want to. Mom, dad, do you ever feel like that with your kids? You don't want to punish them, but you got to. God said, what do I do? He comes into his creation and he says, I will sacrifice myself. I will pay the price and thereby satisfy my holiness. I gave a just punishment for the sins, but because he didn't give it to you, he took it on himself, that's mercy. I don't see how any man could have come up with that system. The salvation presented in the Bible, I hope that you personally experience it even today. There's something else, though, I want to talk about. When you read in the Bible, and no other holy book could come up with this, I'm impressed with it, symmetry, science, seeing the future, salvation, and the Son of God. Because every time I turn the page in the Bible, I get to see another picture of Jesus every single time, front to back. When you open up the Bible, you read about Abel. He's a shepherd who's persecuted because he gave an acceptable offering. Jesus is the good shepherd. He was persecuted and he gave an acceptable offering. You read about Noah. He built an ark and if anybody gets in the ark, God seals them in and then they're safe all the way through the troubles. Jesus is the ark. You get in the ark and God seals you in and you're safe as you go through life. You read about Isaac carrying wood on his back. He's the father's only beloved son, Genesis 22, and he carries the wood on his back and he's got the fire in his hand and he gets to the top of Mount Moriah and he says, "Uh, Father, there's wood. I got a cross. There's fire. There's a second death. But Isaac said, where is the lamb? Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. I see Jesus in that story. I get to Joseph. Oh my goodness, when you read about Joseph at the end part of of Genesis, he is like Christ in over 100 different ways. He has 100 different similarities. I see the Son of God all through the book of Genesis, and that's just Genesis. We're just getting started. We get to Moses, and you have the Passover lamb. You have this brazen serpent on a pole. Have you read about the Day of Atonement? Have you read the book of Leviticus? Oh, what an exciting book. Most people skip it because they think, ah, this has nothing to do with me. You're missing something. On the Day of Atonement, you know what that priest had to do? He had to get two goats, two goats. One had to be killed. The other had to be sent away, a scapegoat, scapegoat. One had to die. The other had to be sent away. What I find interesting about that is you have the sin of the world put on Jesus So, he has to go away. The Bible says his soul was not left in hell. He carried our sins into a a waste howling wilderness. Off he goes. But he also had to die. He's both, both the death goat and the scapegoat in one. The perfect atonement. He died and he went away. Both in one. When you read about Joshua, do you know the Old Testament, the name Joshua is the is the name Jesus in the New Testament. It's the same name. But Moses couldn't bring him into the promised land. He dies off because the law can't get you there. You gotta have Joshua to bring you all the way in, who's a picture of Jesus. One thing after the other just keeps showing you Jesus and and it just continues like that until Jesus actually shows up. I love this old Bible because I get to see Jesus everywhere I look. I'd like to show you something else. Let's come to James chapter one, please. 
I love the Bible because of its symmetry, science, sees the future, its salvation, how it presents the Son of God. And then one last thing. I love this book because it speaks to me. It speaks to me. Now the temptation as you open the Bible, you come to, let's say, the book of Romans. Who was it written to? The Romans. <laughs> the Roman church. So, th so the idea is it wasn't written to me. Why should I be reading it? When Isaiah wrote, who was he writing for? The nation of Israel. Are you Jewish? Well, no. So you read that and think, well, what does, what does this have to do with me? You get to Leviticus and think, why? <laughs> you get to Chronicles and go, who cares? <laughs> I don't care who beget who and beget who. I don't care. But when you read the Bible, this is a living book. God breathed life into these words. So as you read the Bible, it's reading you. This book, look at verse 25, James 1.25, it says, Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth not therein, be not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. This man is looking into the perfect law of liberty. We, we find that law laid out in the Bible. Look at verse 23. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a what? In a glass. When you're looking in the Bible, you're looking into a mirror. You know what that tells me? It speaks to you as an individual. When you look in the mirror, it doesn't show you my face, does it? Thank God, right? That would be weird. One of those Freaky Friday kind of things. Wake up and who am I? You look in the mirror and that's you looking back at yourself. When you look in the Bible, it starts to speak to you as an individual. So you're reading something written to the Romans or the Corinthians or to the nation of Israel and yet somehow God can reach through those words, grab a hold of your heart, start speaking to you. I know of no other book in the world that every day, no matter what I'm going through, can reach out and grab my heart and speak to me. Let me give you an example of how this works. We, we are built, right, with three parts, body, soul, spirit. I would say that the Bible has that same trichotomy. It has a triad. It's a body, a soul, and a spirit. It has historical facts. You can read about David fighting Goliath, yes? That happened. It, it's a historical fact. But that's the body. That's the surface. That's the history. Then there's the soul. Dig a little deeper. You get into the moral qualities of it. What do we learn from the story of David and Goliath? You don't have to be big to win. Have courage in the face of big uh, challenges. Right? That's, that's a moral lesson that you can learn from that. But some of you this week are going to face some Goliaths. You're going to be going through some problems no matter what they are and it's going to really scare you. And as you read that story, the Lord just reaches through those words and says, now you're David. And if you'll just trust me and use what I've given you, grab a hold of your sling, take courage, and he'll speak to your heart and tell you that you're going to overcome Goliath. That's the spirit part. That's where it becomes intimate. That's where a connection is made with you. So the Bible has those three layers to it. Every verse in the Bible has those three layers. Historical, moral, spiritual. And the deeper you go into that Bible, the greater the connection will be. 
Maybe you read it today and you'll find yourself in the story of Jonah. You're the one that's being called by God running away. God will reach through and grab a hold of your heart, say, where do you think you're going? Maybe, maybe you'll find yourself in the story of David, not the one with Goliath, however, but the one where he's backslidden. He's messed up with Bathsheba and he's trying to cover it up. And God will reach through and say, I saw what you did. Maybe you find yourself in the position of Joseph. You've been mistreated by all the people around you, thrown away into slavery, and you feel as if everybody is against you. Maybe you can find some encouragement in that story. Maybe you're Peter. Actually, you are Peter. <laughs> but maybe you're the Peter of the Bible. And you're a bit angry at the Lord and you're confused and you don't know why he's doing what he's doing in your life. And as you read that story, the Lord will reach through and grab a hold of your heart and say, hey now, look me in the eyes. Let's see if you can... Let's see if we can get you back where you need to be. Maybe you find yourself in the story of Job. Your life has just been turned upside down. You're confused. You don't know why God's doing all this and you're just patiently waiting for him to show up and speak to you. And through reading these stories, God can reach through and talk to you as you're going through it. Maybe today you're Saul. I'm talking the New Testament version. You're religious you're very religious. You're zealous in your religion, but you're not saved. You have no problem going to church. You have no problem keeping a list of rules, but you don't know Jesus Christ personally. And you read through that story and you find that Jesus will show up and manifest himself to you as an individual. I don't care where it's at, somewhere. If you keep reading, God can reach through and speak to you as an individual. My goal today is to get you not only to have a Bible, but to hold it, to honor it, to embrace it. Not just to read it, not just to live it, but to love it, to love it. I don't know if my voice will hold up, but it's a fitting way to end the sermon. What light is that shining so brightly for me? and gives me such courage the right way to be. What hope for my trusting soul ever shall be. God's wonderful book divine. And I love the old Bible, the precious old Bible, a light on my pathway to shine. And it keeps me so happy, always so happy. God's wonderful book divine. What hope for the traveler when strength's almost gone that makes him determined to keep fighting on when sweet consolation from heaven's white throne. God's wonderful book divine. What chart can you trust for a guide to the soul when tempest will strand you on some dreadful shore? What compass will point you to heaven's bright shore? God's wonderful book divine. Now, in case you are wondering of what book I sing, it's the same one the old time revivals did bring. It's the only one Bible authorized by the king. God's wonderful book divine and I love the old Bible my precious old Bible it's a light on my pathway to shine 
And it keeps me so happy, always so happy. God's wonderful book divine. It's a book to hold in awe. And it's also a book to be held. Have you read it this week? Have you read it today? How about you go home, grab a hold of your Bible, and spend some time cherishing that precious old book. Let's all stand, if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Just for a moment. And in just a moment, some music will quietly play. I think it will. Christina's going to try to get that going. And I, I'm not going to keep you long. There's not, I'm not going to give you a long invitation today. My goal today was just to try to impress you with the Bible. As is often the case when you're trying to talk about how great God is or something God has done, you fall short. So I'll encourage you to do this. Get your Bible, start to read it, spend about 10 years in it, find out how great it is. This is why we offer discipleship classes and Bible school classes. We want you to be familiar with that book. And we can't say enough about it in 45 minutes or an hour. You, you can't cover it all. I love the old Bible. How about you? Do you love it? Do you love it? How many tears have you shed on its pages? How many times has it spoken to you? Not to a general crowd, not just to tell you what's wrong with the world, but to you. It's a mirror. It cannot speak to you if you don't spend time in front of it. The longer you look, the more you'll see. Father, thank you for this precious, precious Bible, Lord. We believe you inspired it. We believe you've preserved it. Thank you for a copy of it. Lord, this book has changed my life. Please let it change somebody else's life today. Lord, in this book, you tell us all about yourself, about your son, about your salvation. Lord, you know what each individual in this room needs to hear today. Speak to them. Get a hold of their heart, Lord, please. Father, help us as a church to be a pillar and ground of the truth, to exalt your word. As you said there in Psalms, to exalt it and magnify it above all your name. Father, please continue to teach us this book. Continue to speak to us. Bring us back tonight. We'd like to be fed again from this precious old Bible. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.